Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Samuel M. Brown is Assistant Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and Medical Ethics and Humanities at the University of Utah and an intensive care physician in the Shock Trauma ICU at the Intermountain Medical Center. His award-winning book, In Heaven As It Is on Earth, Joseph Smith and Early Mormon Conquest of Death, was published by Oxford University Press in 2012. He is also translator of, and you're going to have to tell me that name, Alexander's... Is that a, just a, Alexander. Okay. Mien. You, you said it much better. Alexander Mien is how he said, but you could call him Alexander Men. Okay. Son of Man, the story of Christ and Christianity. He's here today to talk about his book, First Principles and Ordinances, The Fourth Article of Faith in Light of the Temple, and that is being published by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. So welcome, Samuel M. Brown. Thank you for coming in. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. You have one of the longest titles for your assistant professor work. What is this? Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine and Medical Ethics and Humanities. Wow. Yeah. That's a very crowded business card. <laughs> How did you come to that uh, position and, and passion, I guess? Well, academic physicians, I think to make up for something, always have very long titles. That's just how we live. It's a very complicated world. Nice. So strictly speaking, you could also think of me as an assistant professor of internal medicine. Okay. Inside internal medicine, there are lots of different divisions, and I'm affiliated with two divisions within that. One is pulmonary critical care medicine, which is a long way of saying doctors of the lung and in the intensive care unit. ICU is not the ER. The ER is the right. first place you come for a wide variety of problems to figure out where do you go next within a hospital or do you leave the hospital with some stitches. ICU is after you've been seen in the ER surgery. If there's a high risk of uh, life-threatening complication from whatever illness is going on, you'll come to ICU. So we run life support systems and take mm. special care of people who are in a life-threatening crisis. And you won't be surprised to hear that working in an environment like that where people are facing life and death decisions gets a lot of us pondering the big issues. And medical ethics and humanities, which is another division within internal medicine, is a group of mostly it's PhD philosophers and legal academics, but it's also a couple of us that are uh, research physicians or physician scientists that are thinking about the issues from both sides, both from the practicing doctor side and from the thinking about the practicing doctor side. So for me, it was very natural to um, add medical ethics and humanities mm. to my work on intensive care unit problems because I think you confront deep moral and human questions Sure. On a daily basis in the intensive care unit. So it's been nice for me to live the life of the practitioner and the life of the thinker about that practice. Oh, okay. so that, that's why I combine those two. Yeah. Did that have anything to do then with your book that was published for Oxford University Press on the early Mormon conquest of death? Did, did that kind of your theology, your, your religious side of you meet with your medical side? Absolutely. Absolutely. That I, in college, I was trying to decide, do I get a PhD in religious history or do I go to medical school? And I felt very clearly that God wanted me to be a physician. I, I disagreed. I didn't want it at all. It wasn't until really? I was, oh, I Seems I like a better financial so option. Yeah, but I grew up, <laughs> you know, I'm one of the people that grew up on welfare who didn't think it was uh, important to become wealthy. You know, some people, it's that whole Horatio Alger rags to riches. I'm going to be wealthy because I was poor. For me, being so poor growing up left me believing that there was much, much more to life than uh, the size of the paycheck or the size of the house or car or whatever. So for me, in fact, the fact that it was well compensated in America was a disincentive. Mm. I didn't want to sell out. I didn't want to become bourgeois. I didn't want to lose track of what mattered in life as a result of the money. I wanted the life of the 
of the austere academic, right? The penny, the penniless thinker. But (laughs) I felt so strongly in uh, college. Part of it was my patriarchal blessing. Part of it was that I converted from adolescent uh, atheism to, I was raised Mormon, but was not a believer for most of my childhood. And about a year before college had this series of experiences and decisions uh, and connections that brought me to what's been a very durable belief in God. And I think having had that religious experience right before I started college, patriarchal blessing, and then prayerfulness during my first year of college, I felt very much called to be a physician, but felt like it was a terrible idea until my second year out of medical school. (laughs) I was two years out of medical school when I realized that I was grateful for the call, that I actually Hmm. loved being a physician and wanted to always maintain that live connection with other people, like a a clear focus on service. So I've always been interested in religion. I've always been interested in thinking philosophically and historically and was a physician and my wife is a religious historian, an, an actual professional bona fide one. And she and I were talking and I was reflecting on this love that I had developed of being a physician and realized that what I was experiencing in the intensive care unit as a physician was relevant to understanding what was going on in the period of human history when the restoration happens. In the ICU, you are besieged by the specter of death. And in the early 19th century, you are besieged by the specter of death. And watching my patients and their families confront these these crises made me much more aware of what work religion did and what work religion did not do in the lives of people that were confronting the possibility, even sometimes the probability that they would die. And I returned to my studies of religious history with that practical awareness. And there's been a movement in religious history for the last about 30 years called the lived religion school. David Hall, Bob Orsi, a variety of other prominent historians have advocated that we need when we write religious history to be, in essence, interviewing the people in the pews and not just analyzing the illustrious theological texts of the leaders and asking questions about what does religion do in people's daily lives. And so for me, the lived religion school is a very natural connection to what I was doing as a practicing doctor. And so in heaven as it is on earth, there's an academic history in that lived religion school that asks how would we understand early Mormonism differently if we were attentive to the things it did in the lives of the people that were hearing and receiving uh, this? Well, I can actually, now that you've brought that out, I can very much see that as a thread throughout this book that we're here to talk about, the First Principles and Ordinances book, because you talk about these very fundamental principles— but you talk about them in a very real, everyday, lived, experienced kind of way, not just what did the scriptures theologically right. say about them. So I guess amongst other things, we do talk about the topic of faith. Of course, that is in the fourth article of faith. But you address this right off the bat with this, I don't know, faith crisis. It's probably not the best word, but just this period of time where you went through atheism uh, agnostic even, I think at one point you mentioned, and it brought you back out of that into a position of even stronger faith. I'm kind of curious because it didn't go into detail with the introduction. What was it that brought you forth from from that position to a position of faith again? It's a complicated question. And a com- no, it, it, not in a bad way, it, but it's just a reminder. And I think I make, I, I try to make clear in the book that I do believe that faith is um, complicated, not in the sense that people can't understand it with some kind of advanced education, but in the sense that it's a growing living thing. Mm. And just like life is marvelously complex with so many interacting parts that rely on each other, so is faith. 
And in some respects, that gives us the freedom to have and nurture faith without thinking that faith is some one single thing, right? Some moment when an angel confirmed that the gold plates were real or some moment when we you know, read some text that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt the logical necessity of the restoration. Instead of believing that faith is some simple thing like that, recognizing that faith is as complicated as any other living thing. And I think recognizing that complexity leaves us open to a living kind of faith. And so my, my answer to your question of how I went from atheism through agnosticism and on to theism uh, is complicated in that regard. I think the move from atheism to agnosticism is relatively straightforward. I think it, in my personal experience with it, and I don't mean to be rude by proposing this, I think that the kind of unequivocal certainty required to be an atheist per se uh, is as difficult to defend as the unequivocal certainty of a theist. So I think the notion that you can reject theism by a leap into atheism, it just, it's, it doesn't make the kind of frankly logical sense that would be uh, useful. And I think for most people, atheism is more, um, is more a statement that they feel deeply disappointed in or betrayed by religion rather than a true deeply philosophical claim. Now, I'm, I'm aware that many people will think I'm speaking nonsense here and that they're, you know... Too broad of a brush, right? Too broad of a brushstroke. And I'm aware that atheism contains multitudes just as sure. theism does. But, but my sense is that agnosticism is a much more logically defensible skepticism about religion than atheism is. So for me... Atheism to agnosticism was relatively straightforward, and that was something that mostly was logical rather than um, rather than emotional or spiritual. But then in agnosticism, you're still left with figuring out how do I live a, a life? What do I do next? Right? right? I mean, you can you can make whatever theological or philosophical decisions you want to make about the big picture. But then at the end of the day, you still have to wake up in the morning and do something or not do something. And, and you have to have a why attached to that. And, and there's got to be some – well, there doesn't necessarily have to be. But, but we as human beings naturally want and I, and I think appropriately want to have a sense for a why. What is a good life? What is my good life? How will I decide what is good and what is bad? And how will I hope to flourish and how will I hope to assist other people in flourishing? And the problem is, frankly, that you know, as I'm coming into the age of 18 and I'm starting to think about these questions more seriously, there's just not that much available within agnosticism to address that. Now, again, I'm, I'm aware that people will complain and I'm painting in too broad a brushstroke and, and, and the, the most common response is uh, a kind of humanism, which is this uh, affectionate regard for the marvel that is a human being. Uh, and I'm sympathetic to that. I share. I share. In, in that sense, I'm absolutely a humanist. Absolutely. I think it's, there is something irreducibly wonderful about human consciousness and about the fact that we exist at all. I, I personally think that's a fairly religious impulse, but I'm, I'm aware that other people will disagree with me and I'm not trying to get in some boxing match over it. <laughs> but as I experienced it, uh, as I experienced it, and you know, I tried to read in the existentialists and I tried to be aware, you know, 18-year-olds, uh, you know, they're... <laughs> Dipping into all kinds of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, well, and your, your sense of how well-read you are is... Uh, inversely proportional to how well-read you actually are. So, you know, at age 18, you think of yourself as, and, and I thought of myself as an existentialist for probably a year or two on the basis of reading like a couple books by Camus and a couple books by Sartre, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, at the level that an 18-year-old so had. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was, 
I was so proud of myself for <laughs> for knowing and quoting Sauch. And uh, but as I as I sort of pondered it, there's this sense in that almost seems to come out of Nietzsche as he echoes through Western secular traditions. Um, this this notion that there is nothing but this will, this this will to uh, persist or to re- to refuse to you know end one's life that, that that that's the inherent beauty of human beings um, and and I agree I I mean I, I'm not a Nietzschean but I, I agree that it's be, it's beautiful when human beings exercise their will I mean we Latter Day Saints would say free agency we're like no duh yeah. of course I mean of course yeah. that's important. But the notion is whether that free agency can exist in an entire vacuum or draws its power and force from the fact that we are embedded in networks of love and connection and affirmation with other human beings and with God. And I, th- I think trying again as an 18-year-old, so... Uh, not as uh, sophisticated as I thought I was at the time. But as I tried to work through existentialism, it felt to me that there was a kind of willful refusal to um, acknowledge the meaning vacuum, you know, the, the vacuum of meaningfulness that stands behind purely non- theist accounts. And again, I'm aware that people will push back about that. I'm not trying to get into a boxing match. I've not ever been able to sort out for myself a, uh, a, a well-grounded, and I've read the people who have proposed that they're coming up with them, and it's always felt to me like there's a little bit of a sleight of hand going on. Mm. Not in a malicious way. I don't think they're setting out and saying, I believe in God, but I'd like to make money by writing books that say there is no <laughs> yeah. God. So I'm going to come up with this. Ma- I don't think any of that's going on. I think they honestly do consider themselves to be non-theist, but nevertheless cannot remove from themselves the hunger and need to live a meaningful life. And so what do you do when you've eliminated the ground of meaning right. from your life to create a life... You, you try to come up with things. And, and I think there's an element of um, unintentional self-confusion that happens as you try to bootstrap, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That, that, I think as you try to bootstrap a meaning out of a vacuum of meaning, uh, it's going to be very arbitrary and is going to feel insubstantial. Well, and I've, I've even heard... I think it was even Terrell Givens that described atheism as a, as a faith-based thinking. Absolutely. So, so there's, there's certainly that there. To, to get a little bit closer to the book, because we, actually some of this is very, very closely tied, you know, the things that we've talked about so far really do set the stage for, for your book. But there is an opening statement that I wanted to give, uh, and it actually doesn't come from the book. It's just the promotional one sheet that was talking about your book. Uh. So I don't know who wrote this, but uh, it was actually a very good quote, and it speaks, in my opinion, it speaks very much to the uh, context and purpose of your book. It says, Familiarity can lead to a kind of blindness in life and in in religion. The first principles and ordinances of the Latter-day Saint gospel are particularly at risk for misunderstanding through such familiar neglect. I wanted to give you a chance to kind of expound on that idea as an umbrella description of your book. Thank you. Yeah, early on, I, when it was still a code title, you know, back in <laughs> 2012 when I was writing the thing on Sunday mornings, um, I called it a fresh look at fundamentals. Okay. Uh, and, you know, that just isn't catchy enough. A lot it, of Fs. Yeah, 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 yes. <laughs> No, I mean, authors' first titles are usually terrible, but they at least give you a sense for what the author's trying to do. And what I found when I dove into the research for In Heaven As It Is on Earth was that I had misapprehended so much about early Mormon history, not because I hadn't read the documents, but because I hadn't understood the fundamentally different cultural context in which those documents were first read. Okay. 
And in the In Heaven book, I tried to be scrupulously academic and not interject any of my own religious sensibilities. I wanted to try to understand the idea world from the early 19th century and then try to understand what the document said and meant in the early 19th century. But as I finished up the book, I realized I'd learned a lot. <laughs> These were old documents. Like we'd all known the documents were there. I don't, I mean, there were a few documents that had been found in the, re, you know, in the few years leading up to that book. But by and large, these were not the secret trove of documents that <laughs> Mark Hoffman's latest iteration discovered <laughs> deep in, a, in an attic trunk. Sure. These were old, I mean, these were the old church newspapers that were published in the 1830s and 40s. And, and they were diaries. Available. Yeah, just available. But I realized I hadn't understood them because I hadn't understood the life that Joseph Smith and the others inhabited at the time they came. And it occurred to me that writing in heaven as it is on earth, even though I kept the religious me out of the writing of it to try to speak a language that would be available to believers and non-believers, I found that I had changed through the writing of that book. And I'd come to see my own walk of faith, my own experience as a Latter-day Saint in a different light. Simultaneously, I recognize that academic history books don't speak to all Latter-day Saints or to speak to all people. That's a very well-known fact. (laughs) That's why you have university (laughs) presses and commercial presses. (laughs) And they're generally not the same thing. But it occurred to me that that there were these beautiful things that um, I could share with other Latter-day Saints. And I'd begun to experiment with them in 2011, 2012, just in, uh, with the ideas, not with my fellow Latter-day Saints. I don't do experiments on Latter-day Saints. <laughs> <laughs> but the ideas, I'd been, I'd been sort of toying with them in Elders Quorum or Gospel Doctrine or discussions with other Latter-day Saints. And it, and it almost felt like this light would sort of go off as we started to think about this new way of approaching things. Uh, and I, I love that Maxwell Institute came up with the cover for the book that has this light bulb because there is this sense in which a light sort of goes on mm-hmm. when you see something from a totally different perspective. It's like that optical illusion of the young woman with the big fur boa and then the, the older woman and they're the same thing. And there's that jolt when you realize that you'd been seeing one thing and there's a totally different thing there. Right there. Yeah. yeah. Hiding so, in plain sight. Yes, hiding in plain sight, ab- absolutely. So that, in in a very real sense, I was trying to ask the question, how would the core, the fundamentals, the basics, look differently if we thought about them from the perspective of Joseph Smith's inspired quest as part of the restoration of the gospel to interconnect all human beings in relationships of tender parental regard and love and ask, what if that is central? And what if not only is it central in the sense of, I love my wife and kids and I'm delighted that we have a temple sealed relationship, but what if it affects every aspect of the gospel? How would faith look different? if we thought about it in terms of relationships and of creating durable relationships to which we are faithful? What if repentance is not so much a story about some 14-year-old boy sitting alone in a room thinking, don't think dirty thoughts, don't think dirty, you know, the sort of berating himself that he can't do it all right. What if repentance is a story about reconciliation and aspiring to be better so that we can love better the people in our lives and forgiveness itself is a kind of repenting and the withholding of forgiveness is itself something that requires a kind of repentance. What if baptism, instead of just being a supernatural bath that turns, <laughs> you know, I always wondered when I was, uh, when I've interacted with kids, like they're perfectly pure until the clock strikes midnight on their birthday (laughs) and then they're morally depraved (laughs) for however long that happens to be. And then they're perfectly pure again, but only for a millisecond. And, and sometimes you feel like that imagery of baptism as a supernatural bath 
can be a little confusing if you kick the tires a little bit. I don't mean to pull that away. I, I think for people who have experienced particularly adult baptism, that it, it's a it's a overwhelmingly powerful spiritual experience. Uh, and so I, I don't mean to be uh, rude or dismissive about that image, but, but it struck me that much more than that was happening in baptism. And then baptism is a kind of being adopted into the body of Christ, adopted as Christ's child. And that imagery in the New Testament and in the Book of Mormon that sometimes I think gets people confused about that Trinitarian, Unitarian thing, mm-hmm. I think is pretty clearly understood uh, as part of Christ's adoption of us, his enactment of that relationship of parental regard uh, clearly happens through baptism. And we also join the family of the saints through it. And so in that framing, baptism becomes an expression, I am your child, dear God, and I am your sibling, dear saints. And the creation of that relationship, that healing and saving relationship is what matters. And that's that's what carries us through these episodes we have of being less good and more good and struggles along the way. It's the creation of that relationship. And it speaks to the baptismal covenant, right? Exactly. This, you know, mourning with those that mourn and, exactly. and, and all that. It's not, I'm just clean and you know, sin-free and I'm committing to you, yeah, God. Yeah, good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 becomes, it becomes part of this entrance into a community, which yeah. is, as you said. And so we, you know, most people are, again, familiar, to use the term. Yeah. They're very familiar with the first or the fourth article of faith as these first principles and ordinances. And I would say that a bulk of the book that um, would, would probably be very paradigm-shifting for people starts right off with the principle of faith because you deal with this in uh, not just uh, this is what I believe or in a religious faith in the organizational sense, but you talk about faith and you set it up in such a way that I believe you address it um, in two different kind of, at least that you say that we talk about faith in two different models. What are those two different models and how do you discuss those two and right, right at the beginning? I think that's a great question. Um, I, I've come to think that we can use Lehi's statements about um, things that act and things that are acted upon and use that as a paradigm for understanding faith. And there's a faith that acts and a faith that is acted upon. And for a lot of people, when I talk to them, when they talk about faith, they're talking about one of two seemingly totally different understandings of faith that are both fundamentally passive. They're both fundamentally a Mm. faith that's acted upon. One of them is that faith is the natural mandatory reaction to some proof from logic or science. Darwin showed that, uh, you know, monkeys and dinosaurs didn't cohabit or, you know, whatever it is that we decide as our stand-in for evolution. Therefore, I can't believe in God, right? There's no sense that we have a choice involved in how we contextualize or understand or seek to understand further this set of scientific facts. And it's a common framing that I hear for people who are describing themselves as in the process of losing faith. I have no choice in the face of the scientific proof. Yeah, I read this and now I can't believe. Exactly, yeah. exactly. That sense that we miss this whole causal step uh, and by missing it, we do injustice to both faith and to science and to the facts. So there's that one model. But then there's another model that says, I will only have faith uh, as a necessary response to some overwhelming manifestation of the spirit, visit from an angel, um, some powerful spiritual experience when reading the Book of Mormon, that when that is present, I have faith. Because I have to. What other option do you have? Both of those see faith as a response, spontaneous and irresistible to some external stimulus. Whether the stimulus is a well-argued uh, logic or science-based 
treatise or some encounter with the Spirit. But I think that an, a transforming faith, a faith that divines us, that and I guess I do mean the pun. I argued with editors about whether I could leave that pun in. But I think divining is a sense of figuring out our inner selves and also of making us into divine beings. And I think that that pun actually is relevant here, that a faith, a faith that divines us, that figures out who we are deeply and in the process of figuring that out, elevates us into the, into the presence into of divinity, trans, trans, truly transforms us. That's an active faith. An active faith involves choice. It involves commitment. It involves faithfulness. And that's really what I suggest in that chapter on faith is that we understand it wrong when we understand it as a passive thing. It's an active, living, breathing being. And it is this active, living thing that brings us into connection with God and with our fellow Latter-day Saints. Yeah, it's beautiful. And speaking of that that sense of community, moving on to repentance, you actually, again, talk about repentance not just in a, I'm seeking forgiveness for something that I've done wrong, but you bring it into a community context. You, you kind of touched on that before. Maybe you could take a second to expound on how that works. Yeah. I start the chapter out with the prodigal son, because I think the prodigal son is such a beautiful story that exemplifies so much, because it tells us that Repentance is a story about both of the brothers and the father. And the brother who was the black sheep, the screw-up, whatever you want to call him, (laughs) his repentance is his acknowledgement again that he is his parent's child. He says, please, I am your son will you accept me again as your son? The father, repentance, is saying, yes, you are my son. Welcome home. And the, the good brother, his repentance is seeing that his life that hit all of the milestones just right is good, but incomplete. And it's incomplete until he can say, yes, you are my brother. And I think the prodigal son really is a beautiful framing for repentance. And it's one that I've seen. I start the chapter after that epigraph with the story of my reconciliation with my father, who, boy, he was a black sheep in spades. <laughs> he, had so, he's, he wanted so badly to be good. Uh, yeah, I think you said that if he lived at the time of Christ, he need, he would have needed to be exercised yeah, or something. Yeah. <laughs> he was possessed of his spirit. Yeah, 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 this kind of melancholy devil. Poor guy. I mean, he <laughs> he got diagnosed with uh, manic depression, like the full-on, the f- not the reality TV one, the, just the, I mean, just so sad. He wanted so much to for his mind to work and for him to be able to be a part of a functioning family, and he couldn't. He tried, and he failed, and he failed, and he failed. Um, and it was hard. It's hard to be the son of somebody imploding uh, under the vice grip of mental illness, right? That's that's how you end up on welfare. That's how you end up with the police on your doorstep because he's been writing bad checks. Mm. And you know, it's just it's hard. It's really hard. And you sure don't harbor a lot of goodwill toward the what appears to be the source of that difficulty when you're a kid. So he and I were estranged. So you had a prodigal father. I had a prodigal father. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, and I hated him. I just I hated all this sadness and disappointment and frustration. And um, I told him once, it's one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. I've told him once that, uh, that he was not my father in any but a biological sense, that mm. I did not acknowledge any connection with him other than that he had contributed genetic material. And that was the last time we talked. Uh, 
before my freshman year of college. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm sure that part of the reason I was atheist was this experience with my father, this deep and consistent disappointment. It, it, with all of his struggles, he was always deeply committed to Mormonism, always falling short, but always, always um, going and committed and testifying of it. And it, it just rang so hollow to me that here would be this, this messenger of a religious message who was making our lives a living hell. And, and I, I think that was part of where my atheism came from. It's a lot of conflict to resolve. Especially yeah, at a young particularly age. Particularly when you're a kid. Yeah. You know, like eight, nine, ten years old. God. I can't imagine the conflict he must have been having in his own head, though. Exactly. And that was what it took me converting back to theism to figure out. And I had this experience of reconciliation with him that I describe in the book. And through that reconciliation that ended up happening just three days before he died of complications of a kidney transplant, I realized that I had been that older brother mm. from the prodigal son. I had been nursing this grudge. And in nursing this grudge, I had hurt my father. I hadn't seen how hard his life was and how much he struggled. And I hadn't seen how much it must have hurt him to have a son say, you are nothing to me but a donor of genetic material. And that, wow, that really changed the way I thought about repentance. I was already, you know, by the time I reconciled with my father, I'd been a believer for six months. I'd, I'd gone, you know, I, I was typical hoodlum and, you know, shoplifting and, you know. So <laughs> actually when I came back to Utah, I was living in Davis County from about age eight to about age 18. Um, when I came back to Davis County, my Christmas break from college, I was off in college pretty far away. Uh, so I came back because I, I, you know, I converted like three weeks before I went to college and then have this intense first semester and then come back for Christmas break. And I had a list of all the things I'd done that needed restitution. Wow. It was expensive because I wasn't the best <laughs> kid. <laughs> so, you know, I was like... I, I went, I had to go apologize to some teacher that I had made cry by just being brutal oh, wow. to him. And, and um, I had to go pay, like, I had to sort it out. But all the, you know, the, the, the stupid just prank shoplifting and vandalism. Mm -hmm. So I just had this long list that I, I'd been saving up that first semester in college and I'd paid them off. And I'd made all those restitutions and it was a good thing. So my, I felt like my slate was clear of my sins. But then processing a few weeks later this experience with my father, I realized that my failing to forgive had been perhaps the weightiest of the sins that I had committed. Not, not that I needed to um, just roll over and let him destroy our lives, but that, but that what, what my faith and repentance could have been calling me to earlier mm -hmm. was a way to love him as a, as a troubled man uh, in a way that could honor the glimmers of goodness that were still in him. I, I think I would still have supported my mom's decision to divorce him, which I think was sad but absolutely necessary. I think I would still have been very careful to avoid the financial risks that were associated with him when he became manic. But I like to think that I could have found if I had been more present with God and with the Spirit at the time, a way to be tender with him and to acknowledge our relationship in a way that would not have been so brutally dismissive of his hmm. pain and struggles. And that's, so that I'm not... I'm not some like, you know, anything goes kind of a guy. I, I, I live all of our standard behavioral requirements and I'm glad of it and, and work hard to 
be worthy of my temple recommend, which I maintain. So I'm not advocating that we go all drink a bunch of coffee and <laughs> and have some nice wine. Simultaneously, I don't sit in judgment when that happens I, because I think what matters so much more is our hearing the voice of God in our tender regard for each other. And so I, I do find that I'm the kind of person that recognizes that I've got my own struggles and we've all got our own struggles. Sure. And that faith and repentance, more than anything, are about hearing God's voice uh, and seeing God's face within other people. We've talked so much about these deeply theological things, yet again, we're going back to something that is fundamental, and, and perhaps we've not looked so deeply at these things in the past. And so the book becomes a great way to revisit these principles, rethink them, and see if we can find something new. But with that being said, you have a subtitle to this book that yeah. is super intriguing to me, and that is that the, the fourth article of faith in light of the temple. So we're moving on now towards the ordinances and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Where does the temple fit into these four principles? That's a great question. I found at the end of writing in Heaven as it is on Earth that the Nauvoo Temple liturgy was a kind of beautiful summation of the basic story of the Restoration. And it was this honoring of and creation and maintenance of durable relationships among human beings. And when you come to the temple and the temple liturgy in its original theological context, you see that that's, it's about this. It's about the story that salvation is communal. It's about the city of Enoch, Zion, that is saved bodily as a, a group of saints who loved each other with tender regard and saw in each other the face of God. And it occurred to me that the temple was a beautiful way to summarize these basic insights. And then I went back as I was working out the relationships that I'd explore in the book I was thinking about ways that the first principles and ordinances and the temple illuminated each other. Mm. There's this kind of crosstalk that as I take the sacrament each week or as I baptize one of my children, I think about those in terms of the grand drama of the temple and the story about what it meant to become human the story about the ways we as individuals identify with our first parents, as I thought about the ways we all walk through this veil of tears and that progression in the temple through the veil of tears and what awaits us at the end and how we make our way and end up in celestial glory is also itself a story about faith, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so that, for me, you know, I think sometimes, I think sometimes the temple feels a little overwhelming because it feels so separated from our everyday lives, it's even separated from our everyday church services. Right? We're a pretty, we're a pretty low church. It, I don't mean to be a jerk about it. Low and high church just means you know, low is like. Baptists and Pentecostals and high as Anglicans and Catholics and, and uh, Lutherans. And it has to do with uh, sort of, it, it has to do with a lot of things, but part of it's how formal and Catholic-like mm. the liturgies are. So we Latter-day Saints are extremely low church, right? We got like kids, kids running around, kids running around <laughs> food fights with Cheerios, <laughs> yeah. chirp chirping. And the sermons are largely not exclusively, but largely given by the lay members that are sitting in the pews. And mm -hmm. even, the, even the clergy that are giving the talks are themselves lay members who happen for some period of time to be 
serving in that calling. So we're extremely low church in our worship. And, and I love that about us. And a lot of people do. A lot of people feel like they're most in tune with the Spirit worshiping in that low church way. But the temple's kind of the opposite of that. The temple very is high church. Exactly. Yeah. So the temple's very different. And I think it can be disorienting for people. And, and I hear people talk about concerns they have with the experience of the temple. It doesn't make sense to them that high church feel to the liturgy there is alienating to them. They don't understand what's going on. And part of that is inevitable. We appropriately maintain sacred secrecy about certain key elements of the temple liturgy, and, and we should. And the fact that we keep them in sacred secrecy means that we don't spend a lot of time talking together about how to interpret them and how to make sense of them. Now, there's, there, are, there are those great books that Hugh Nibley wrote with a wink-wink and a nudge-nudge that I think were helping people think about temple in different ways. But even, even Hugh Nibley sometimes felt um, a little complicated uh, in my experience. It wasn't really available uh, to everybody. And so my hope is through First Principles and Ordinances that, you know, uh, 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 a good friend who's a former bishop uh, read First Principles and said, I would love to have used this in the temple prep class mm. in my ward when I, I was could the see bishop. That. Because I'm hoping that this sort of a framework is something that allows us to honor the sacred secrecy, but still to equip ourselves with some strategies for understanding and processing the experience that are pretty straightforward about relationships about the creation and maintenance of relationships and seeing in elements of the temple echoes of the familiar, of baptism, of repentance, of faith. Yeah. It, one of the things that I found most uh, rewarding with reading through your book was the connection that I saw to some of the, the teachings about, or at least the admonishings from the brethren to study faith repentance, baptism, over and over again, and how many people dismiss it as, but it's so pedestrian almost, and yet the brethren are not wanting to keep things from people, but your book helped kind of vindicate the idea that there's so much beauty in these simple things that can be studied for a lifetime, for an eternity, and the tie-in with the temple and the tie-in with relationships was also kind of echoed. Did you get a chance to listen to President Eyring's presentation at the Vatican? I have not yet. I heard that he did it, but I haven't. It's, it's 13 minutes, not very long. It's it's beautiful. I, I have a feeling that you will find, if that had happened before you published the book, you may have even included uh. some of it, because he talks about the importance of relationships, the inter interrelationships of, of marriage, and their function within the gospel, and it even further illuminated the role of the family proclamation in this kind of faith, repentance, baptism, oh, community oh, idea. Um, and so as I was reading it, I thought, man, boy, that sounded an awful lot like what President Eyring said about selfishness and, and different things, and and how selfishness in a, in a lot of ways is kind of the antithesis of faith and repentance. Yeah. And so I think that we'll, we'll go ahead and... And put a link up for people to to purchase a copy of this book. Again, it's called First Principles and Ordinances, The Fourth Article of Faith in Light of the Temple. It is a I found it to be a rewarding read. But one last thing that I wanted to kind of ask you about with respect to this is because it's being published by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, some people may come into this thinking that it has a sense of scholarship exclusively. That that it's it is a scholarly kind of read. I didn't get that sense. It felt more devotional to me, but with some very good, profound philosophy and thought behind it. So it's not foreign to a scholarship-type press, but it uh, it is very approachable. Yeah. Is, uh, that, is that a fair summation of it? Is it kind of a devotional text with a lot of scholarship it, to it? Yeah, absolutely. And the Neil A. Maxwell Institute inaugurated a series called Living Faith. Adam Miller's Letters to a Young Mormon, which is a marvelous book that I highly recommend, was the first book, and My First Principles and Ordinances is the second book. And the idea behind Living Faith is asking academics to write to fellow Latter-day Saints 
about their life of faith in a devotional way. So this book is uh, intended to be read and enjoyed on Sundays and um, I'm hoping will contribute to conversations in gospel doctrine classes and relief society classes and elders quorum meetings. Uh, the high priest I don't think we'll ever reach, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, so absolutely understood uh, as a devotional uh, expression. And I'm, I'm an academic, so my most normal writing style is academic. And recognizing that I wanted this book to speak to fellow Latter-day Saints who are not academics, I hired a trade editor to make sure that we made a book that was available and accessible to non-academic readers. And that's it. Now, as you note, it draws on a lot of academic research, and particularly on the research that I did for In Heaven As It Is On Earth. And it, it draws on some theological problems that I've been starting to work through from a much more scholarly perspective. But here in First Principles and Ordinances, it's, it's designed to be totally accessible, devotional, uh, straightforward language, getting rid of the jargon, trying to make the sentences more straightforward, not all these convoluted curly cues that I have a tendency to do in my <laughs> academic writing. Well, it's spiritually healthy to read. Is that is that fair to say, drawing upon so. your medical background? Yes. It's spiritually healthy. I hope so. The book is First Principles and Ordinances, the Fourth Article of Faith in Light of the Temple, written by Samuel M. Brown. We'll have a link to that. And uh, again, it's published by the Neil A. Maxwell Institute. And uh, there's no website presence for this, is there? Or just, yeah, yeah. Is there? Maxwell Institute has a, a website for the book. Uh, they have their own website and... Uh, so go to the I Maxwell think Institute's on, website. And I think on my author page I have a, a site for it. But I would say the main site for the book is the Maxwell Institute's okay. book, book page for it. Excellent. We'll point people there. Thank you again, Samuel Brown, for coming in. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.